Hey everybody, it's Richard Harris and Scott Lees here with another uh, episode of the Serpent Sales Podcast. It's the first episode of February, so we want to thank our sponsors of Lead411, Vidyard, Wingman, and Salesforce Revenue Cloud, uh, who we're excited to partner with. We've got a special project coming up with them later this month. Uh, but now we're excited because we're talking to another Serpent Sales alum, someone who didn't know us from anyone and decided to trust these two strangers to go to Costa Rica. Uh, and his name is Jeff Kerchick. And I don't know if you're going by Jeff or are we going by Jeff, Jeffrey now that we have the authentic selling book. He's okay. officially the author, right? Oh, look, it still says Jeff on the cover. So we're going to oh, okay. Jeff, right? Yep. Go with Jeff. If uh, Usually uh, if someone's calling me Jeffrey, it's because I'm in trouble. So right. Jeff's good. That's cool. So, so just for, for reference for folks, right? Give people a background of where you are, like what's your role currently, average deal size, sales cycle. So they have reference for, for when we start talking about things, they understand your point of view. Yeah, sure. So my name is Jeff Kerchick. I am the head of sales for Nextcaller, uh, which is a Y Combinator company focused on fraud and authentication for call centers. Kind of a niche topic that you don't hear about every single day, but uh, there's a big security problem within call centers, people, you know, impersonating others and stealing their money or their, you know, hotel loyalty points and things like that. Um, I lead a small sales team. It's about, uh, it's eight of us and our average contract value is about a million dollars a year. So fairly large uh, contracts dealing primarily with the fortune 1000 sales cycles about nine months. Uh, so kind of a typical enterprise sales cycle. And uh, yeah, I've learned a lot through doing the job. Obviously, I've learned a lot from you guys, and uh, I'm looking forward to the conversation. Man, you've been there for a long time now, like seven and a half years. Talk a little bit about the, the stages of evolution, if you will. Um, that is, you know, five, four times as long as the average tenure of a VP of sales, something like that. So what, talk to us about the, the different stages, if you will, in, in growth uh, and changes in your role. Yeah, for sure. So, I mean, when I, when I started working at Nextcaller, I kind of just came on as a salesperson. It was me and another guy that started at the same time as employees, number one and number two. Uh, we kind of, uh, still to this day debate about who is the real employee number one between the two of us. And I guess you could just say over time, as, uh, as the company evolved, it became apparent, you know, I guess to our leadership team that I was doing a good job in terms of getting customers interested in, and closing deals. So over the course of time, maybe a couple of years in, I assumed the responsibilities for our sales team. Um, we had uh, Scott, what I think, uh, you know, anybody who watches Silicon Valley would, would understand uh, as, as something called the pivot. And, uh, or maybe if you watch, uh, I guess it's been used in a couple of different shows at this point, but we had a major pivot uh, we actually started out doing caller ID, so matching telephone numbers to information about people. And we, we had that business in place for about like three and a half, four years. And uh, we actually decided to pivot into this fraud and authentication technology that we sell today. And um, sorry, I'm going to move the, uh, my pet here. Um, uh, she's, she's blocking the sunlight here. But uh, we had a, we had a bit of a pivot into this fraud and authentication space, uh, just based on some of the the metrics that we were seeing with profit margins, focus, etc. So we actually downscaled uh, or like kind of downsized a lot of our team at that point in time because we we moved from this the the data industry, which is highly competitive, um, 
you know, there, there's a million different use cases for it. Uh, you can be at every trade show selling data. We went from that to this very niche concept of authentication for enterprise contact centers. So it required a lot less staff. So my sales team is like half the size that it used to be because of this pivot, uh, which is ironic because usually as a company grows, you expect that the the sales team grows and, and, every, and everything grows. But in this case, it was the opposite. We needed less resources in order to, to do this well. And um, so that's kind of the evolution of it. For the last three and a half years, we've been focused on this, uh, this more niche subject, this more enterprise focus, higher profit margin, higher level of focus, uh, you know, area. And so the, the productivity per rep had to have gone up then in order for this to, to work, right? Exactly. Yeah. It's been, uh, it's been, it's been, uh, it's been interesting to see. Um, I would say that that's true, except for perhaps on our inside sales team, it's actually maybe the opposite because, you know, the productivity is still there maybe in terms of their output, but reaching out to uh, somebody who's like a C-level or VP level person at a bank is a lot different than reaching out to like you know, somebody who sells solar leads, you know what I mean? Like one of those sales is kind of transactional and the other is a little more strategic, let's say. Um, nothing, by the way, nothing against the person who sells solar leads. It's just, uh, they're just different prof different buyer profiles. So. Yeah. But closing those, those larger deals, like you were talking about with million dollar ACV, you know, you, you got a sales rep that closes two, three of those uh, a year. And, you know, what is this? A typical SaaS quota is maybe like a million dollars for the, over, over the course of the year. Like that's really high productivity you know, per head. So how do you balance having that much success on a productivity per head basis with not wanting to add more people? Is, is there not, is there a finite, you know, number of customers for you? How, how do you hold back on just a, uh, you know, dumping gasoline on this thing and saying our productivity per head's through the roof. Give me 20 more of these reps. Give me 10 more of these reps and they're all going to do 3 million a year. That We just added 30, you know, $60 million onto our bottom line. How do you, how do you throttle that back? Yeah, it's a good question. You kind of, um, you, you kind of answered the question as you were asking it, which is the, uh, the, the, the total available, you know, market is, uh, is obviously fairly large, but the, um, you know, the, the number of, uh, the account, the number of accounts that we can chase after is finite. So, uh, you know, there's, there's only so much, uh, staff that we need to go after, you know, for example, some of the top banks in the United States, uh, hotel chains, airlines, et cetera. Um, so, so far we, uh, it's been, you know, we, we've been okay on the, the headcount front. In your, in your background, just as, as Jeff, you know, had you done million dollar deals before or not really? Prior to working at Next Caller, no, I had not. I actually came from the higher education space um, and, uh, and I had sold, I think my largest contract that I had sold prior to working at Next Caller was probably around $50,000 a year. Right. At, at Next Caller, prior to our pivot, um, I had closed a couple deals, maybe that were in that $200,000 range, let's say, per year. And then once we pivoted into our new product, was when I started closing these larger deals. Right. And, um, yeah. So it's uh, kind of a first for me. Do you, what was it like the first time you closed a seven-figure deal? Do you remember? 
Yeah, I do. Um, it felt really good. I, I mean, I, I, I will say though, and I, and I, I hate to be like, um, to dampen the mood. I, I found that, you know, selling, um, obviously sell the larger the deal is the, the more complexity that it tends to have, but that's not always true. Like there are a lot of customers that were, uh, particularly finicky and hard to, to deal with who were some of my smallest customers, you know, and, and actually in some ways, I, you, I, you know, obviously the commission is bigger when you close a bigger deal, but um, there, for me, it's actually more around the level of complexity. I think that excites me. Like if somebody was being very difficult and, and we're able to eventually come to an understanding and they decide to move forward, I feel better. Um, you know, the first deal that I closed was, was long. Um, it was our first customer. So we had no reference customers. So for me, the win there was more like kind of that it was tangible to me that we were on the right track and that there was more where that came from. Um, you, you always want that validation and the, 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 the client, I can't name who they are, but they're a top 10 bank. And uh, you know, it, it obviously is a great feeling to be able to say you got that logo. So it was exciting. There's, there's 10 banks left in the United States. I didn't know that. I thought they'd all <laughs> like four airlines. So yeah. Um, so, so here's, here's my question. It, it, it's almost like, you know, Scott, I'll turn it and flip it to you. Does it feel any different scoring a, you know, a, a goal in soccer in college than it would in the pros or a goal is a goal. The emotion is, I just need to score. What do you mean by that? Let me uh, elaborate a little bit. Well, I'm, I'm wondering, oh, I want to hear Scott's answer. He knows where I'm going, but I'm wondering. <laughs> I'm surprised Jeff doesn't have the same answer as me it's absolutely different absolutely you score a goal in in pro or semi-pro the the degree to which you're celebrating versus scoring a goal in high school you i can't even measure it it's massively different for me so i'll let i'll turn it over to, to jeff now See yeah I was, I was curious did it you know to go from 200 to a million 200 oh, million you know did it feel any different or or yeah it does because you know, it's funny because I think what it does is it shows you that your skills are, are translatable. I don't even know if that's a word, but they, they translate, right? So like it's validation, you know, for, for me, when I was selling my first job, I was selling deals that were like $500 to $6,000 a year, annual subscriptions. To, and like in, when I was that, when I was 22 or 23 years old selling those deals, the thought of selling something for like a couple million bucks, I was like, oh, I'll never be able to do that. That sounds like, I, even like saying to a customer that something was like $10,000 felt like, you know, I, I knew that there was going to be sticker shock and I was scared of it, but it's all relative, right? It, it depends on who you're selling to and what you're selling. At the end of the day, your process, what no matter what you're selling um, is the key to everything. But yeah, so I think that Richard, to answer your question, what it does is it shows you that your process works and it makes you feel good that you can do it at any level. Yeah. Um, and I think it's a validation. So it felt great for that reason. Yeah. I wanna, so you talked about it being, you know, a part of the thrill for you was that it's more complex than the difficult customer, right? What does complex mean to you and what part excites you about it? Because I, I don't disagree. I'm just curious. Everybody's got their own definition, right, of complex. Yeah, complex for me generally means that there's a lot of strategy involved into getting something done that, that, and things that might not be intuitive. Um, so I think it's really around, actually, I, I would say a good definition would be around how intuitive 
it is. The, the more thinking that needs to be involved, in other words, the less intuition that it requires and the more outside the box thinking, the more complex it is. And I think what, what we'll often see tied to that is in like an enterprise setting, uh, there might be one person who holds the, the, the money or, or you know, that has the pocketbook, so to speak, but that individual might not be the person that you're talking to. In fact, they might be in another part of the organization altogether. So you need to understand a lot about how the organization makes decisions going in. Whereas, you know, if I were selling, um, let's say I were selling like SaaS sales enablement technology, uh, not, to, not to say that that's simple, but uh, on one hand, you would, you would have a good idea in every organization who your buyer is. You know, presumably it's the person who runs the, the sales team, who's the, the decision maker. Obviously there's some exception to that, but, um, so I, I use that as a contrast where there's kind of a different style involved depending on the level of complexity. Part of that for me is even figuring out who do I even talk to? And then when I talk to that person, who else needs to be on board? How do they make a decision? Um, you know, what other, in my landscape, which is fraud and authentication, the security landscape, there's a lot of vendors that we don't compete with, but who I would say are like tangential to what we do. And it's important to understand what investments have they made in those technologies, because it shows me their appetite to spend in this area, but it also shows me where their gaps are or like what they haven't solved for yet. So I just think there's a lot that goes into it. A lot of things that you might not normally ask, might, I think like the lack of, in, of intuition um, that probably goes into it, but I'm eager to hear uh, Richard, your, your definition. My definition is very different because I don't deal with a lot of complex deals. The most complex sale I have is getting Scott to show up on time to things. So, <laughs> Come on, man. <laughs> uh, this is early. I haven't, I haven't been able to jab Scott all weekend. <laughs> uh, no, I, I think you're right. It, it does come down to that creativity and that intuition and doing that sort of peripheral research that you're talking about. But you also have to like it. Like I know a lot of people where like, oh my God, sitting here trying to sit down and strategize and figure that out is just too complex for them, right? And, and I'm sort of in between. I'm, I'm not, I like more than a transactional sale and I like to think things through, but I'm also so impatient that I don't want to have to sort of go and do all that stuff, you know, but that, that could also be age too. I could just be tired and old. So, um, so I'll take that piece, but that's how I see it. Scott, what do you think, you know, how do you define the complex sale these days? Um, long sales cycle, multiple, almost interchangeable parts in terms of who the decision maker is, which I think Jeff talked about, like, could be this person in, in one org, it could be a different role in another org, um, technical, meaning like your average salesperson acumen is just like not going to cover it. Like, I can't talk about what the tech does. Right. Um, and, and sometimes it was like APIs involved talking to each other. Like, man, I don't know how to talk about that. Like all that stuff is complex. And then um, the terms. And I don't even just mean like $10,000 versus, you know, a million dollars. I mean, terms like the actual agreement and, and what kind of weird things are in there in terms of what needs to get done by when and what things are covered under service versus not and, you know, net 90 versus no, we're not paying until we're for formally onboarded. And like that, the whole legal process being a nightmare, like those are the things that I think about when I think of 
complexity in the. Uh, Here's the reason I want to go down this route too. Was you know, Jeff, you, you know, for whatever reason, you join into this amazing organization. They give you not only did they give you a shot, they kept giving you a shot, right? Like kept saying, "All right, well now go here. All right, pivot." Now go sell these seven million dollars, these seven-figure deals. Now go sell. Now go run the team, right? And so often, someone like you could get topped off, right? You're earlier in your career. So my my question for you is, for those founders who are out there, what do you think it was about? What do you think they should be looking for in their sales reps to give them that shot, right? What do you think it was that gave your your founders the the opportunity to sort of go yeah Jeff's our guy yeah so I'm gonna first of all I'm gonna move my cat Zoe onto the floor so she doesn't disrupt our our podcast but I would say the uh I would say that it's I'm gonna give you kind of a cliche answer but I I really think it matters because you mentioned the word founders which implies to me early stage company looking for maybe their for their lead sales hire or something like that and I would say that it's a fear of failure that person needs to fear failure and giving up. And, uh, and it's a little different than resilience and persistence. And when I say that, I mean, like that person needs to fear failure. And I joke about this, actually, I joke about this in my book, but I talk about how I grew up with this uh, kind of uh, anxious, you know, overbearing Jewish mother who, you know, pushed me to succeed in everything that I do. And I think that's where my fear of failure comes from. I don't like to give up on things. And uh, I, I told another story in there about how I quit the wrestling team in college and how, you know, uh, you know, it was a division one wrestling program. I was a walk on and whatever, like I had no business being on the team and I still beat myself up for quitting and how that experience made me never want to quit at anything else again in my life. Because I thought about, I think about it every single day, you know, even to this day, I think about what it would have been like to have been successful instead of quitting wrestling. And, um, the reason I'm telling you that story, Richard, to come full circle is because in the early days of NextCaller, especially when the product wasn't all worked out and whatever, we had a myriad of issues. I thought about quitting a thousand times and I'm not even, I'm not exaggerating. I think it may, it probably could have been 10,000 times I've thought about quitting at some point in time over the last seven and a half years, just because, you know, various problems that we ran into, you, mostly at the very beginning, like the first few years of the company, and I always thought about this story from Think and Grow Rich. There's a, the book, you know, it's the famous self-help book, and it's about the man who almost struck gold. It's about a miner who, as you can imagine, gives up before, you know, his next pick of the ax would have struck gold. And when you are the man who almost struck gold, you never know it. You never know what could have been when you give up. And I'm very grateful that I never gave up because it led to a lot of success, you know, especially after our pivot. Uh, And I think that, you know, for a lot of folks, they might have thrown in the towel for a number of reasons. Maybe the product wasn't up to snuff in the early days or whatever, but you need somebody who, if you're going to hire like your first sales rep, you're a pre-IPO, you know, early stage tech company, that person, you know, it doesn't matter how hard they work. You need to know that they're in it. Like when shit hits the fan, like you need to know that they're not going to give up, that they realize that that's part of the process. Like they're giving you a solid few years, no matter what happens. Um, that's what you're looking for is somebody who really would really, you know, would kick themselves if they were to quit at anything. Funny. We should, we, we've never used that when shit hits the fan. That might be a good episode title, Scott. Yeah. <laughs> How to make sure shit doesn't hit the fan with Jeff Kirchin. Jeff, I, I remember when we were at, um, when we were in Costa Rica and we were at surf and sales 
and having conversations just about writing and, and sales books and, and that kind of thing. And I remember you kind of mentioning that it was something that you wanted to do and uh, you just did it. Congratulations on, on having it come out. It's called Authentic Selling, How to Use the Principles of Sales in Everyday Life. Tell, tell, give us like a brief, uh, you know, synopsis. Like, what was the writing process like? Um, and you know, what, what, what's in there? What might somebody expect if they were to dive in and, and read it? Sure. Well, before I do that, I, I, I should, uh, of course, give you guys a shout out because at Surf and Sales, you guys asked everybody at the end or towards the end of it to come up with some goals to hold uh, hold ourselves accountable to. And one of my goals was to build my brand. Um, yeah. My specific goal was to build my brand through social media and like social selling and stuff like that. But uh, I took it to heart and I, and I, I decided to write this book um, in large part because I, you know, I've had this creative writing background. It's what I focused on in college, uh, believe it or not. Uh, a lot of people are surprised when they hear that you can actually do that in college as like a major. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, and then also- Those are the kind of majors that end up in sales. Yeah. Yeah. The ones that just can't do anything else, I guess. But, um, but yeah, so, so, but the other thing too is, um, you know, I, I had always had this, uh, well, so, you know, look, I'm not, I don't want to talk about politics obviously in this podcast, but what was going on at the time last year was our, our, you know, and still today is that our political dialogue was very fractured. And I would see a lot of my friends kind of calling each other names, like, you know, you're a racist or you're a snowflake or you're this or you're that. Um, and kind of making memes about each other, you know, the way that the other political party thinks about things and often oversimplifying, you know, willfully oversimplifying other people's ideas. And I had this idea in my mind, like, wow, a lot of people don't really have any sales acumen because they wouldn't talk to each other this way. You know, when you're having a conversation that's difficult, you wouldn't just tell the other person that they're stupid or they're dumb or they're wrong. That doesn't work. People want to come to conclusions on their own accord. And, and it's your job if in the marketplace of ideas to help them. So I, I wrote the book really because I thought that everyday people could benefit from understanding sales acumen, you know, how to listen, how to be empathetic, how to not, how to, how to have your ideas rejected 95% of the time and be cool with it. You know, that's like an important thing that a lot of people don't get because they don't see themselves as salespeople. They see themselves as something different. But the thing is, like, everyone's a salesperson. We're all salespeople and we're all being sold to constantly. Um, the college admissions counselor is no more a salesperson than the used car salesman. Uh, they're both trying to pitch you something. So that's part of the book. The other part of the book is about how authenticity is really important in this era of selling. Because with the advent of machine learning and artificial intelligence, Automation is taking over a lot of different industries. Uh, sales is included. And there's a number of vendors that some of whom sponsor you guys that are in the automation space. And there's nothing wrong with that, by the way. It's just a reality that moving forward, the one advantage that humans will have against machines, especially in the world of sales and protecting your job, is authenticity. It's your humanity. It's what makes you you. It's, it's uh, something that human beings appreciate. It's why when you call customer service, most of the time you probably press zero to talk to an agent because dealing with the machine is a pain in the butt, right? So authenticity is important to bring to your selling philosophy, whether you work in sales or not, because of this uh, uptick in automation. 
And uh, those were kind of the themes of the book. It was twofold. One is that, uh, you know, one is that everyday people stand to benefit from learning about these sales tips and here's what they are. And two, how do you, how do you incorporate authenticity into all of this? Did you find the process of taking the ideas that were in your head and getting them onto paper easier than you thought it would be more complicated? Did you, you know, write a hundred thousand words and have to trim it down? Were you, you know, struggling to add length. I'm just real, I'm real curious about the actual, you know, details of the writing process. Sure. Especially from somebody like you who has a writing background oh, and, yeah. and how it, you know, is different than my process when I, I don't have a writing background at all. Yeah. So that is, you know, look, I'm not good at a lot of things. Um, that's why, that's why, uh, that's why I ended up doing creative writing, but I am good at writing, right? So that's, that's, uh, that, that's, that's, that's why I focused on it. Um, so for me, writing is actually very easy. And in some ways, you know, people that are looking to write books, I feel like when I give them advice, it's a little bit coming from a biased lens because there is, it is easier for me to do this than for others. And I have to keep that in mind when I'm talking to others about it. Like if I wanna write a blog, it takes me like 10 to 15 minutes to write a blog. I just crank it out and it's, it's done. So I wrote this book in like three months, probably from start to finish. Um, in fact, like most of the work was figuring out like what stuff I needed to take out of the book, you know, to, to avoid, you know, getting myself canceled or, you know, for saying the wrong thing or whatever. Um, it was like mostly like kind of going back, reviewing a lot of the logistical work, like the design for the cover and things like that. Um, but, you know, Scott, like you and Richard, like you guys have been doing, uh, you guys have tons of experience, you know, there's a million things that I could, you know, still learn from both of you guys. Like you guys have been doing this for a while. Presumably you've written down a lot of your ideas somewhere. You've trained a lot of people. And so for me, you know, the to kind of liken it to what you guys do, I've been kind of doing what you guys have done, but on a smaller scale, but I realized like, you know, I've trained a bunch of people. They seem to like what I'm spitting out when I train them. Maybe I can take these ideas and like incorporate them into this book. So it was really like when you have all the ideas ready, like when, it, when you, you know, you have your style and you, you have all this content that's kind of sitting on the shelf, like maybe you've been using it for your new hires, or maybe you've been using it for one of your consulting clients or various consulting clients, like all the content's already there. You know what I mean? Like you've been, you've been showing people how to do this the right way. Um, and you guys have written stuff, so you know what I'm talking about, but sometimes it's just like trying to find where everything is and organizing it in a way that makes sense. Yep. Yeah, that can be challenging because, you know, you have to remember, and especially like for the audience that I was trying to cater this to, I was trying to make it accessible to anybody, which is tough in a sales book because a lot of sales books are very technical. And so even like certain words that are in the book, I had to like define because not everybody knows what like a president's club is. You know what I mean? Like, I, you know, I had to, I had to like make sure that people understand what that means. Yeah. So um, that can be, that can be a challenge. I, I remember, I remember getting feedback back from my uh, editor who was like, what is R? A-R-R. <laughs> she was like, you know, like, oh yeah, not everybody knows what all these terms mean. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, but I'm just going to hire you to come finish my book because it's just been painful. Like, well, you can do that, but they'll, you know, if you if you want someone to ghostwrite for you, it's usually good not to uh, 
to announce it on your podcast. So maybe. Oh, I don't give a shit. Who cares? I put it right there. I, I, I like written by Richard Harris, ghost written by Jeff Kirchhoff. Like, what do you, I get? You get all the credit, Jeff. Get all the credit. Cool. Yeah, I'd, I'd love. I to, I'd love to be tied to the Richard Harris brand. There's nothing, nothing bad about that. It's no big deal. It's no big deal. So let, let's, you know, you you've had this competitive spirit. You talked about it all the way back to wrestling. Were you this tenacious as a kid? Were you this? You know, were you, I'm going to grind whatever it is out? Were you the always athlete kid? Were you the kid who always was selling candy or something? Like, who, who was Jeff back then? Yeah, I would say, I would say the answer is yes, but I might not have been as intentional about it in my mind. And it's a weird thing to say, but like, I, I, don't, I don't think I had the awareness at the time that I was competitive. You know what I mean? It was more natural. Um, I was always a soccer player growing up. Um, I remember, you know, I, I, I would always score the most goals, uh, just as like a kid or whatever, as I got older, I became more of like an average player, you know, uh, I was fast growing up. So that was my big thing. Um, but I remember I like, you know, I always wanted to score more goals than anybody else. You know, I, I would like make it a point that I would get the most, you know, I, I, I wanted to be the best at everything that I did just because I played sports and that's what, that's kind of what's instilled in you. But I, I, I don't, I never remember being like mean about it. You know, like I wasn't that, com I wasn't cutthroat uh, competitive. I was just somebody who I dreamed of being a professional athlete. I literally would daydream. Like if, if my mom went shopping when, you know, dragged me along, I'd be like in the supermarket aisle, like swinging an imaginary baseball bat. You know what I mean? Like my, my, my mind was always towards doing something greater than what I was doing at the time. And, and I've always had that mindset of visualization of like what I want for myself in the future. And I always enjoy, you know, watching folks like you guys who are out there doing all the things that I want to do. Right. It makes, it motivates me. Um, I visualize uh, that type of thing. And I think that came from childhood. It's something I always dreamed of being an athlete. I obviously didn't make it. I never had the growth spurt that I was uh, waiting for. Um, so it didn't work out, but, uh, but I, it, I think it did come from childhood. Cool. What is, what is, what is out there that we've done that you want to do and have not? There's, I mean, not, I think, there's not much left, Jeff. Um, well, I think you guys have built online curriculum. You know, I think that's something that I'd like to start doing. I think that you guys have done consulting, which is something I'd love to do someday. I think the fact, uh, Scott, that you uh, you have a captive audience every Thursday night to hear you shoot the shit is really cool. I don't think I'm there yet. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm just trying to get people interested enough to pick up a copy of the book at this point. Um, so, you know, I, I appreciate the kind words, but uh, there's, there's still more that can be done and you guys have done a good job uh, leading the way. It's interesting. I hadn't thought about it until you just said it, is that you are following the exact same model Scott did. He wrote his book first. Then you still have a job for a while. You start building your brand. You start sharing. So in two years, you'll you know you'll you'll be there too. Probably six months with AI. Yeah, so yeah, like, the dark side. Yeah, well, you know, one of the things I'm Jeff could probably attest to this, but uh, if you're if you're somebody in a leadership role or in a coaching kind of mentorship role, and you and you have a good conversation with somebody and they don't take you up on the advice, it's like an instant, like, oh man, you're dead to me. Like, what was the point of, of all that, right? But then when you do have those kind of conversations with somebody and they take action, 
it's you're it, there's like so much pride it's just like yeah dude, look at that guy go right look at that look at that girl go do all that and we had these some of these conversations you know a couple of years ago at at surfing surfing sales and i don't know if that event was truly like a big catalyst or just one in a series of uh you know moments but like are you intentionally designing your your career right now or are you just more like no nah, these these things are happening. I know I, I want to do this. So I'll do that next. Like how much planning and modeling is there? Very little. Um, you know, I like, I, so the book was a spontaneous thing. I, I, I like, you know, you, you ask my girlfriend, I mean, there's like one day I told her like, I'm going to write a book. And then like, I just started writing a book. And then three months later I'd written, I had written a book. And part of that, I mean, I explained kind of why I was motivated to do it. A lot of stuff that was going on in the world was making me upset. And I thought maybe I could, you know, try to matter and, and make a difference and write about it. Um, and, and so I did. And, and, you know, as far as like, you know, right now I'm in the process of building an online course, you know, again, that's not something I planned. I, I didn't think that that wasn't even an idea that I had as recently as a month ago. You know, that's an idea that I, I, I realized, you know, I wrote the book and, and uh, you know, people took it seriously and, um, you know, I've, I've mentored SDRs, uh, in, in SV Academy and, and a co-op and some of these other programs. I mentor SDRs within my company. I've, I've always gotten very good feedback on that. You know, same, same thought process with the book. Like, you know, if I've gotten good feedback on some of these tips and I put my ideas out there and it gets a nice reception, then why not build an online curriculum where I can help other people that are looking to break into sales that people that have imposter syndrome about their ability to do something that honestly really, if they're good at it, just requires them to kind of be good at being themselves, you know? And um, so a lot, you know, Scott, to answer that, I, you know, same thing when I went to college, like all the kids I went to college with are, um, let's just say kind of goody two shoe kids. They all, they all wanted to uh, work in finance or become doctors or lawyers. Like, I feel like they came out of the womb knowing like I'm going to go to Princeton and then I'm going to become a doctor or whatever. Like that was their plan. Like I, when I went to college, I had no clue what I was going to do. I actually switched majors. And then when I was graduating, I applied for finance jobs, consulting jobs, teaching jobs, jobs in sports. And I won job in sales and like the, the finance and consulting people were like, why are you even applying for this? And I was like, I don't know. I, I'm supposed to get a job after college, you know? Um, but like, I've never, I'm supposed to apply for jobs. What do you mean? Yeah. yeah, like what the hell? Like I'm doing what I'm supposed to do. But um, anyway, the reason I bring that, tell that story is because I guess, I mean, I'm not telling people don't plan. I mean, there's obviously, I'm very organized. I'm, I plan a lot. Like I, I, you know, I trust me, I'm, I'm a planner by design, but when it comes to things like this in my career, I don't know. I feel like planning in a way is limiting because you don't know what's going to happen to you. Like you might start going down one path and then like a new opportunity comes where it's like, you should go down this other path, but because you planned too much and you, you, you had this idea of what you were going to do. Now you're like cut off from like this other thing life threw at you. So I don't think too, I don't think too many steps ahead. Um, maybe that's a mistake. I see Richard kind of shaking his head there. So I'm a little worried, but I, uh, I, I don't think too far ahead. This is, this is Scott Lee's like you're, you're officially, a garbage can disciple of the man. <laughs> so uh, this he's is la he's laughing because because listening to you tell that story, like it, he, it could have been me telling that yeah, story. Yeah, totally. Word to word. Like, 
it's so funny. But but I, I do know, I do know one thing, particularly about Scott and, and I think you is that when you do choose to set a plan in motion, you then get microscopic about that one little plan. You may not have the big plan, but if you're like, okay, if I'm going to do a book, I got to do this and this and this and this and this and this and this, and you get super microscopic about it. So, well, it's also the it's also the follow through though, like the the decisiveness in terms of the the follow through as well. Now he's got his mind on on the course, so like, boom, he's going to crank that out. So, yeah. that's that's something that uh is super admirable and, and yep. rare. I will, I will say like once you do get your mind on something it is exciting like it, it it like it becomes a new problem to solve and I know that sounds bad but it's actually a good thing like having problems is is good like having problems is what gives our lives meaning if you think about it like if if if, if the three of us didn't have any problems you know our lives would be really boring you know there would be nothing for us to do all day oh you're so young you're so young I'm sure, you know, I know know when when I have kids, maybe I'll, I'll change my, my perspective on this, but having having problems to solve gives you meaning and it it makes your life exciting. And I think, you know, once you set your heart on like, I'm going to write a book or I'm going to build an online course, that's like a new problem to solve, but it's also, it's exciting because it's like a new adventure. And I, that's something that I really enjoy is like when I, when I get inspired to do something like that. The, the, the types of problems you become interested in solving yes. is going to change and evolve. It's not so much, Richard, that you, you, you don't want any problems. It's just a new problem. Like, yeah. we got to get your golf game to where you're shooting in the 70s, right. not, not the 80s. Like, that's a problem, right? right. But right. that's a problem for, you know, old men in retirement, right? <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. So, um, Jeff, we're gonna we're gonna turn it around on you in a second and ask you what advice can we give you. Um, but I would love to I'd love to ask you one more thing before that, and then I'm gonna do one more shout out to our sponsors. And, and the thing I want to ask, two things I want to ask. One is, what did you? What was your biggest surprise coming out of surf and sales? Um, and in fact, why don't we do that conversation rather than what advice you want to ask? I think that'll be more interesting for people. Um, and then I just want to give a quick shout out to our sponsors of Salesforce, Revenue Cloud, Wingman, Lead 411, and Vidyard. Um, you know, and yes, AI uh, cannot replace the humanity, right? Uh, yes. Automation is not authenticity. I wrote that down, by the way. I like that one. So thank you, Jeff. And thanks to our sponsors for being here. But Jeff, like for people who are like, well, you know, these guys full of shit. Like, what's the surf and sales thing about? Like, what, what were the, what were their big, the best surprises out of that event for you? Yeah, I'll, I'll make it very simple. So I'm somebody who actually, you know, is naturally shy in dedicated network settings, especially with other salespeople, because maybe, and maybe I'm wrong for feeling this way. I probably am. It's probably a faulty assumption, but I have the impression from some past events and things that I've gone to certain communities where it feels to me like salespeople, because of how competitive they are, oftentimes are really more interested in showing that they're like the best person in the room rather than actually in like helping each other in kind of like a non-judgy um, format, like in a, in a way where you can be vulnerable without feeling like people think you're an idiot. Um, so I actually naturally shy away from doing like dedicated sales networking and like, like 
previously, like professional development. Now I've been a lot more intentional about it. But um, what so what surprised me about surf and sales was the people. Um, the people uh, were fantastic. Uh, there were, I mean, I think everybody presented in some way, form, or fashion during the event. Some uh, in more vulnerable ways than others, but through the course of the week, I mean, it felt like everyone had become a family by the end of it. Um, from a networking perspective, I mean, I, I had hired somebody from that event. I've stayed in touch with other people. Um, like a lot of the time we talk on LinkedIn, we do a lot of strategy stuff. I really like came away feeling, it, it actually gave me confidence that I should be doing more professional development and networking with other people rather than trying to do it on my own. Um, I, and like I said, now maybe it was a faulty assumption to have had to begin with, but that was a very elite group of people to decide, you know, obviously going to Costa Rica and surfing is fun, but regardless to decide that you're going to pay, you know, you know, some cash to go to this dedicated event that requires a certain type of person. And, um, I would say to those who are on the fence about it, you should absolutely go, uh, these opportunities don't grow on trees. If you want to sit in a conference room. And, and get the education, that's one thing. It's a lot more fun to do it on the beach uh, in Costa Rica with uh, Salsa Lozano, which is another cool thing you'll, you'll learn about. Um, and yeah, that, that's my biggest thing. I mean, there's obviously more than that, but that's my number one, Richard. I'm, I'm surprised there's no dedication to Salsa Lozano in the book. <laughs> that's coming in the, the sequel. It'll be in the sequel. That'll just be the, that'll be the title, in fact. Yeah. <laughs> So, Jeff, this has been awesome, man. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, always good to catch up with you, right? Like, it's, yeah, thanks, Jeff, and congrats on the book release. On the book, and, yeah. Uh, all the success. Yeah. So, and we look forward to hearing more about uh, as you go into your video stuff and all the other things you got coming up. So, thanks again for spending time with us. Thanks, guys. Appreciate you having me. And uh, yeah, thanks again. <laughs>